This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide. And we're live. Welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average. On the show this week, we've got Colin. Colin, if you just want to come in and give us a brief introduction about yourself. So me, engineer, safety geek, leader, manager, consultant. I've kind of been doing a fair bit of everything for some time. Started off as a, um, during the Navy, as a, an 18 year old, fresh out of school. And, uh, and I've grown and developed from there. Started off as an engineer, helicopters, being at sea, living the life made in the Royal Navy, as good as the advert, but then got a passion for safety started to emerge. And that caused me to change my career to leave the Navy and to become a safety professional, mm-hmm. which is where it's seen me now. So I don't know if you've seen a bit of the podcast before on the format. We like to just go right back to the beginning, your early life. Tell us a bit about your background, where you grew up. So I had a bit of an interesting childhood, to be honest. Um, Mum and dad um, worked for a, Coates, a Scottish company, funnily enough, um, and lived, lived abroad, lived around the world. So grew up in the Philippines, Colombia, Hong Kong, and then started flying back and forwards to school. So age nine, flying from, flying from Edinburgh Airport down to Heathrow and out to Colombia was a, as a nine-year-old traveling on your own was quite an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. Certainly taught you your independence at that point. Yeah. So how was Colombia as a nine-year-old? <laughs> Yeah, Colombia as a nine-year-old was, a, was fascinating, to be honest. Um, you certainly, you appreciate cultures. I mean, that's one of, the, one of the amazing things I was fortunate enough to experience living as a, growing up as a kid around the world. The different cultures and the ways of life, fascinating. You know, sometimes you're sheltered from it a little bit, other times you're exposed to it. Um, so, so saw some fascinating stuff. Um, unfortunately, the education system in Colombia um, at the time was a bit challenging. Um, but again, fortunate enough that the company my parents worked for you know, flew us back and forth to school to keep the education going. Um, mm-hmm. So I was very lucky in, in that regard. But still, yeah, um, one, of the, one of the things that I always remember was um, as a wee boy, you know, when you're sitting in the back of the car and it's really cool to flick the Vs as someone going past you. Yeah. Well, flicking the Vs to a lorry driver in Colombia has a slightly different consequence, I found out. Um, <laughs> so much so, I was sitting in the back flicking the Vs. We got caught in traffic. Next thing I know, the lorry driver gets out the back, gets out of his lorry, with a machete in his hand and starts walking towards us. So, so there's me as a nine-year-old. Suddenly, that fear that you get as a kid, that yep. real deep fear kicked in. So I talked, I had a, we had a driver at the time to get us around and sort of quickly explain to the driver what was going on. And mm-hmm. he just sort of looked around nonchalantly, reached under his seat and pulled out a pistol. Jeez, oh. Now, I didn't know the pistol was there uh-huh. um, until that happened. And, and that sort of experience shaped you a wee bit. Um, you understand actually that there is some kind of risk going on and you know hey I was blase I was a nine-year-old kid at the time but for my parents it must have been it must have been fascinating to understand the risk of living in some pretty challenging countries we weren't even, we were outside the capital as well so mm-hmm. um so yeah it was a, it was an interesting and fascinating you know upbringing to to experience some of that and particularly the different cultures I think that was the bit that I really took away as a kid yeah and do you think at that early age that was starting to shape your passion for safety then, getting that first couple of experiences at risk? Um, I don't think I recognised it at the time. The other thing I, I recognised growing up as a kid is I was probably slightly more accident prone than a lot of the other kids, mm-hmm. um, my pals and stuff. I, you know, I fell off my bike at early age. I, I've always been in a position where 
if it's going to go wrong, it's probably going to go wrong for me, or I'm going to cause it to go wrong. Um, you know, be that going for a ride. A mate of mine, he got a, a wee monkey bike, wee monkey motorbike. Yeah. And of course, I had to go on his monkey bike, and it was great. But of course, it was me that fell off, broke his monkey bike, snapped the key off in the lock, broke the brake pedal right in front of his dad. You know, for my pal, it was fine. He was always able to drive. I was always the one that was normally going to screw it up, to be honest. Um, so, so again, I think becoming aware of your own limits, mm -hmm. know your limits, I think is, is a good phrase. And I recognize that my limits were perhaps slightly below some of my pal's limits. Brilliant, brilliant. So if we just move forward a little bit then to talk about your first job, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's interesting. Aged, I remember at Christmas Day, aged 14, sat my, my dad down and said, I think I want to join the Navy. Mm -hmm. um, which is quite a punchy call for a 14-year-old on Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, I'd done quite a lot of digging into it. I love aircraft. I love the sea. And it just seemed like a great way of combining the two. Um, so I went through, joined the Navy, age 18, left school, straight to the, um, the Naval College and, and started mm -hmm. my training. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, that was something that I felt, it felt right. It felt great, to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, hard work, no doubt about it. You know, hard work going through training and then starting my career. Um, it was about it was about a year at the college, followed mm -hmm. by time at sea and so on before I started to head off to university to do my degree. Yeah. Um, but that was a real I found that gave me a real grounding in leading people. That was the whole purpose of going mm -hmm. to the, the Naval College um, was to teach you to be a leader from the mm -hmm. from the very early. So, so to be trained in leadership from 18 was a fascinating insight into into guiding and caring for people, because mm -hmm. as, a, as an officer in the Navy, your primary purpose is to look after your team. Yep. Look after the sailors who you're charged with their safety and responsibility. Interestingly, the word safety never came out a huge amount. It was more about care, caring and looking after your division, they called it, mm -hmm. your team of sailors that you would be responsible for. Um, their welfare, their, um, their promotion, their prospects, everything was, was your responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and, and getting that drummed into you aged 18, with a, looking back on it with hindsight, that really shaped who I was at the time and, and still does. Mm -hmm. And that's a well-trodden path that we've discussed in the podcast a few times as well, that the great background that you get in the military fosters a good relationship for you moving forward into a career in health and safety. It's a pretty well-trodden path from all different branches of the military into being a safety practitioner. And I think you've touched on quite a key point there that you are trained to care about people and to lead people. I, th I think I think that's that's actually I think you know when I look at what I see nowadays out and about and, and when I when I was consulting and going into businesses and looking at some of the challenges the safety challenges they faced mm -hmm. a lot of it boiled down to leadership yeah. and and the difference between if you think about an individual growing up in a career that you're focused on self mm -hmm. whereas in the military you're never focused on self you're always focused on the team or your team, depending yeah. on, on what your, your function is. And I think that's a mindset that's it's quite stark in, in, in those who are in the military and other services, you know, the blue lights services, uh, as opposed to a lot of the sort of private sector and so on. So, so I wonder whether there's something about early leadership development and caring mm -hmm. for others that comes out from that. But it certainly shaped me and it shaped, it shaped me not only from being, being officer and looking after the team and being part of a team, but it also started to shape me in the care and the professionalism that I saw. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that sort of, that's chimed with me and helped me a huge amount as I've taken, followed on the second part of my career in, in safety as a profession. 
Yeah. Um, but, I, but I did a huge amount in the Navy. Um, I think the sort of general training I did and the general time at sea was actually seven years in the Navy before I finally was qualified to do my first job. Wow. Um, seven years of training, including three years at university. On, you know, I was paid to go to university and do my degree. Thank you. I was very fortunate at the time. Well, my parents were very fortunate, I suppose you could say. Um, but, uh, but when I suddenly, when we started to get into the aviation side, safety went from being implicit to being explicit. It was mm -hmm. all over it. Um, mm -hmm. One of the first things they did as part of our training was to take us to our accident investigation center. So mm -hmm. The Navy has a, a sen an aviation safety center based in Yeovilton down in Somerset. And they have, a, they have a hangar full of crashed aircraft because mm -hmm. they, used, they, do all their, well, they used to do all their own investigations. Mm -hmm. so, so there would be the wrecks of aircraft that people had died in. And you would be walked around and talked around and, explain, and they would explain to you the whole accident sequence, what they yeah. found out. Um, and then you'd learn about sort of safety and how your role in safety as, a, as an aviation professional, but also mm -hmm. as, a, as a leader of others and how to set the standards, et cetera. So, so safety, when we got into aviation training, safety became explicit. Mm -hmm. um, and that was that was a real shift for me and that's when that was a fascinating day i still remember that day walking around and and the number of visits i had subsequently um but the safety center the aviation safety center the fleet air arm had was um was front and center within the aviation community the fleet air arm um, everybody knew them everybody knew who they were and everybody was happy to talk to them mm -hmm. it was a really fascinating explicit the, the, the shift from implicit to explicit yeah that's fascinating, and I didn't know that they had that kind of setup that they were taking people around to talk them through the events leading up to a crash and what they'd found out about it, and doing all of their own internal investigations as well. I thought it would always be something along the lines of the RAID that would that would. No, so yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the the whole setup. So every every person who joins the fleet air arm, be they uh, an engineer, a pilot, um, a handler, you know, moving the aircraft around and stuff, they all go to the flight safety centre. Mm -hmm. as part of that as part of their their initial training mm -hmm. to um to get them through and to share that culture of safety and yeah. where it comes from and, and the learning since we've gone tri-service in some areas they've actually removed the accident investigation capability and moved that and centralized that um for defense but they've actually kept the safety center there um, and that's still a, a real sort of center of learning and a and a cultural protection because they're independent of any part of the chain of command they're, they're an independent area and they just it allows them to speak freely to challenge authority um, and to be somewhere a shelter where people can go and talk openly and safely um, in, a, in, a, in a confidential environment if they need to. So it's always been a bit of a, a rock, a safety rock, um, you could say, in, in some pretty challenging operational conditions. Um, but it was, it was a great setup. And, and that, I think my relationship with them as a, as a body, you know, progressed from being a sort of one of many observer to getting more and more involved in them as I got more and more involved in safety in the Navy. Mm -hmm. Um, and that really shifted then. So one of, one of the roles I had was setting the engineering policy. So suddenly I went from being a user of the manuals to being the poor bastard that had to write them. Um, which, um, which, and, and apologies for the language, uh, I do drop into pub language. I'm a great believer that we over, we over complicate the language we use in safety. And I'd much rather talk like I'm chatting with you about be like we're in the pub. Yep. Um, I believe we, we really get we get on the wrong side of language when it comes to making safety too complex. So, so anyway, so back to the, I was the poor bastard left there with a manual that was complex, very difficult to read, had lots of stuff in it, and then we needed lots more to put in it. Um, and actually, just to just to, to add on a context and the link to the safety center, I actually got a letter from the safety center because they were independent, um, telling me that we had a problem with the use of rags 
Now, everyone, everyone who's ever done engineering and maintenance and stuff knows that when you put oil in a, in a gearbox, an engine, wherever it might be, Sod's Law says it's not going to stay in there. And when it comes out, it's really messy. Um, so when you're dealing with hydraulic fluids and oils and lubricants and everything else, you need something to wipe it all up with. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Navy, we used to use rags. We used to get bales and bales of rags, just like any big engineering organization. Um, and we used to just grab handfuls of rags and wipe up the oil spill and chuck them in the bin, in the, in the, in the contaminated rags bin, and then it'd be off and, and discarded. Um, unfortunately, those rags kept on getting left on aircraft. Now, mm-hmm. leaving a rag in, just imagine you're driving your car and you wipe, you spill a bit of oil on top of your engine and you leave a rag on top and you close the lid. Chances are nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you're going to open the bonnet, I don't know, however, whether you look after your car or you're a once a year servicing of your car, you're going to open the bonnet the next time and the rag will be there. And it might be a bit dry because the engine's quite a hot compartment, but other than that, you're going to be okay. If you leave it on a, on a helicopter, it can have some other consequences. Or you leave it in the engine bay of a helicopter. Imagine it right beside a gas turbine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gets a wee bit hotter than under the bonnet of your, of your car. Or if you leave it around the tail rotor and the drive shafts around the tail rotor, the chances are it's going to snag and cause you problems. So there are a number of events that the Navy had and they said to me, Colin, it's not our responsibility to fix the problem, it's yours. So I started scratching my head thinking, Christ, what can we do? And I talked to my peers. So I was, I was a lieutenant commander at the time and, and a lot of my colleagues and peers were, were the engineering managers of squadrons of helicopters. So I got amongst, you know, there was a bit of a carter of, of us all together. So I, I said to them, I said, guys, I've got this challenge. I'm thinking of introducing a policy to control the use of racks. And the guys were going, yeah, okay, no way. You're going too far. It's too much. We haven't got a problem. I said, well, here's the evidence. And when you get a letter from your independent safety body saying you need to do something, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a wake-up call. And a lot of people are saying, no, you're, basically you're taking the piss. Get back in your box. We're running the squadron. We're safe. Just get back in your box. But I couldn't because I was responsible for the, the standards and practices. Mm-hmm. So, so at that point, luckily, one of, one of my colleagues said, I'll put my head around it and chat with some of my guys. And they came up with a way they might be able to do it and, and managed it and wrote a little trial procedure. And we followed that. We got some support. So about a year and a half later, I then go from doing this engineering policy job to going down to take on my squadron. So mm-hmm. eight aircraft, 120 engineers looking after the shebang and introduced myself as the new guy. I've just come from the headquarters doing this and that. And one guy says to me, are you the guy that introduced rag control? So I'm thinking this is going to be following me around like a mill around, millstone around my neck. And actually it turned out, they said, it works. It works mm-hmm. all right. And the interesting thing is since that, they'd had a number of captures where people, you had to count the rags out and count them back in again, basically. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were uniform. They used to be numbered. You, you write one to 10 on your 10 rags. You go in, you do the work, you wipe up your hospital, you come back and you count your rags back in again for somebody else. Mm-hmm. A number of times there were one, two, three, four, five, where's number seven i'll go out and have a look for it oh look lo and behold there it is still stuck in the engine bay mm-hmm. rather than the aircraft taking off and having a fire in flight because it had an oily yeah. rag wrapped around the engine so so it actually worked the control measure was an effective control and that was really i suppose my real we, we never talked in terms of risk it was just something we did it was it wasn't risk assessed formally it was just we've got a problem let's fix it how can we fix it but actually, when you look at it in hindsight now as a safety professional, it was controls are ineffective. You've got a hazard threat. You could put it in a whole risk assessment language. But we weren't at that stage. This is going back a few years, mind. But 
Now we've got an understanding of actually it was an effective control. The barrier was effective because we were getting we were getting captures. And the interesting thing is those captures started to get reported. So people were reporting when the barrier was effective, which is great because we got then the confidence that it was working well. Yeah. And that all um, factors into your culture starting to develop as well. And it gives you that early insight to the, the cultural approach and getting your people on board and getting them to start reporting the low level things yeah. as well as the major events. Yeah, yeah and that, that to me, that position, that engineering policy position is actually when I went from being an engineer to being a safety professional. Okay. That, that was when it really started to kick in for me. Um, I, was, I was invited to, to become the Navy observer on an RAF program. The RAF had challenges in maintenance, looking after their aircraft across their many, many different fleets. Um, and they, they needed to do something. It was a cultural thing they needed to do. Um, and it was about the people. So they, they'd engaged this company called Bain Simmons, who are a safety consultancy, an aviation safety consultancy. Um, and I was invited to go and observe the launch day because there was a lot of inter, interrelationships and support between the Navy and the RAF, the fleet air arms, certainly. Um, so I rocked up as the Navy observer, one black and white you know, Navy uniform in a, in a sea of thousands of RAF uniforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy stood up and started talking about helping people not get it wrong helping people get it right, not get it wrong, and how to learn from when they do get it wrong, and how to have a culture, and how they can have an atmosphere of trust. Um, they were talking about just culture, and all these things, and I started to really sit up and take note, and thinking, yeah, this guy's got something. And, um, and I remember at the end of that day, I said, said to him, I took him introduce myself and stuff, and said, what you've just done for the RAF, do you think you could do it for the fleet air arm? He said, yeah, of course, he's a consultant, he's had his little consultancy, he said, yeah, we could do something for the engineers. I said, no, no, the Navy's like different, we work, it's got to be pilots, air, it's got to be air crew and engineers together. We work together. Yeah, we can do something. And actually through that, I managed to get them to come and do an assessment of the safety culture of the whole fleet air arm. Mm-hmm. How, what's the safety culture like in the fleet air arm? Where are the challenges? What are people saying? What do they believe? And what are we doing about it? Um, so that was a hard sell. We went back to headquarters and said, hey, I've just met this amazing guy. I'm really fired up. Um, I need this amount of money to go and do this survey across the whole fleet yeah. air arm. And you can imagine the battles it took, much like in any big complex bureaucratic organization to get the funds released. But the Admiral in charge of the fleet air arm said, yep. And I had the support of my bosses and the Admiral eventually said, yep, let's do it. So I ended up taking, um, taking a team from Kevin's company out onto the aircraft carrier, onto Illustrious, which I'd served in previously. So I took them out and we interviewed lots of people, watched the operations, took them to a couple of air stations, really got them around and about. And they, they arrived with this doorstop of a report. At this point, this report was 500 pages long on the safety culture in the fleet air arm and where it is and where are the key areas of challenge. Mm-hmm. But actually, more to personally, more than that big doorstop of a report was the understanding that I got and learning from taking these guys around, working with them, seeing the passion they had. Um, they use a strap line that safety is our profession, profession and our passion. Mm-hmm. And that really got me. Um, yeah. So at that point, I could see that safety and particularly the people aspects of safety was where I wanted to end up. Mm-hmm. So that he ignited the passion in me for, for people and protecting people mm-hmm. um, through, through working with them. Um, I'm a great believer that processes don't do safety, it's people that do safety. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So how did you then move into a health and safety kind of focused role from being in the Navy in such a pinnacle position as the engineering policy lead, how 
what left you and spurred you on to so, Well, it's interesting because, because I left the, the engineering policy job and went to my squadron and ran the, ran the engineering operation for the squadron. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to another job in the headquarters, which was helping an admiral run his office. Um, so working on the whole thing. And he was ships and submarines. They had nothing to do with aviation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kept on going back to my conversations with this guy, Kevin Baines, and the work that I'd done with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and his team and the whole consultancy. And, and actually I tried to, I got Kevin to come and meet the Admiral I was looking after to talk about safety in ships and submarines. And I could, I could really see this human factors, error management, all this sort of safety management systems, all this stuff really kicking in. And, but I could also see the challenges of introducing into an organization like the Royal Navy at the time and, and where it was going or what was happening. Um, but I, and, and I realized actually my passion was in going to be helping other people. So I spoke to Kevin and said, Kevin, I'm thinking of leaving. Um, what do you think? Um, he said, yeah. He said, uh, we'd love you to come and join us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. So I didn't leave the Navy and then look for a job. Yeah. I left the Navy to join important. Kevin and his team as a safety consultant. Yeah. I think he, he ignited the passion in me. He, released, he, he showed me how I could bring it to life in a better way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that caused me to take a pay cut, leave the Navy, and go and become a safety consultant in his, in his consultancy. Um, so Kevin Baines and Bob Simmons were the guys who sort of set me on my path. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then to, to do that was, um, was really to, to get stuck into helping others be safer every day. Mm-hmm. That, was our, that was our mantra at Bain Simmons. And we never knew, we always said we'd never know when we got it right. Yeah. We'd never know about the accident we'd helped other people prevent. Yeah. yeah. So every day we would be training people, helping their organizations, consulting, et cetera. But we'd never know the result. But if it, if it meant that one day one person did one thing differently that just broke that chain, mm-hmm. then everything we did was worthwhile. Yeah. That, was a, that was a real, it was, a, it was an amazing organization of passionate people who really gave a shit about safety and gave a shit about helping others be safe. Um, it, was a, it was a great place to work. Loved it. Yeah. So... How long were you there for after you left the Navy? So it was about five years I did, I did at Bain Simmons. Um, and it was, what a learning opportunity. Oh my God, did I, did I learn? Yeah, did I get it wrong? Holy hell, did I get it wrong? Um, I think I got it right more than I got it wrong though. Mm-hmm. Um, and just learned and worked with some amazing organization, big airlines. My first job, after they gave me a few months to, to learn the ropes and to, to demilitarize myself. Mm-hmm. And then they said, uh, right, we think you're ready. We think you're ready to go out there. I'm like, okay, great. I'm excited. I'm ready for my first task. And I said, great, you're going to go to KLM in Amsterdam. It's an organization of 30,000 people, eight divisions, and we want you to do an audit of their safety management system. Mm-hmm. On you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought you were going to let me start small. No, no, that's okay. So we had a team of four of us, and off we went to Amsterdam, and we spent three weeks out there um, interviewing, auditing, looking at their safety management system, and, and, and assessing it and identifying areas for improvement and just work supporting them, supporting KLM in, in how they manage safety. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating insight. That was my first real insight to civil aviation organizations, airlines and their mm-hmm. engineering and stuff. And uh, it was just, it was eye-opening. Um, my second job was Flybe. So mm-hmm. I went down to Flybe and, and did some work on a, a safety culture assessment there. Um, what's the safety culture like and why? Um, Again, every organization is different. There were some really strong characters down there, really great people, some challenges, like every organization's got challenges. Um, and we worked with them. And then it just rolled on with organization after organization. I think the best one I had must have been Air Greenland. Uh, we got a phone call saying, 
can, can we meet? We're looking at doing some work on safety culture and, and safety improvement. We'd love mm -hmm. to have a chat. So the, um, the safety director of Air Greenland flew, actually flew down to, to London and came to meet us in our offices and started to explain a bit about Greenland. Greenland's one of these places where no one ever really hears of, and it's sort of somewhere in the Arctic and it's got a, it's got a few ice fields. Um, when he explained Air Greenland to me, it was mm -hmm. fascinating. So Air, Greenland is the same size as Europe. Yep. They have an operation of about 500 people and everything from a little squirrel heli, A3, AS350 uh, little helicopter, sort of five-seater helicopter, all the way up to a, an Airbus A330 that carries 300 odd people. Mm -hmm. And they have a couple of helicopters down south. So that's like operating a couple of helicopters out of the bottom of Portugal and a couple of helicopters operating out of the north of Norway. That's the <laughs> geographic spread of their organization. Yeah. Um, in an environment that is incredibly hostile. The first time we got out there, we landed, it was minus 30. So we landed, they opened the air, everyone was getting their coats on, their hats on, their gloves on, everything before they even opened the doors. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. They opened the door and your nose hairs just go solid. It's just, it's the first inhale of that cold air and you know it's cold. So, and just working with the most amazing people out in Air Greenland, I had to fight off the whole of the company going, no, no, it's my project. Back off, it's my project. Everyone in the company wanted to go to Greenland. Yeah. The guys out there, they took me up to the top of a mountain on a jet ski. We went swimming in the sea beside an iceberg. That was, that was an interesting safety lesson. Um, after a couple of glasses of wine and a couple of beers to then get down to your kecks and jump in the sea beside an iceberg. Yeah, yeah, not, not the wisest of moves. Um, but we had a safety boat. We put the little inflatable in the water beside it first, so we were safe. Um, but just great. Just fascinating stuff. Um, but actually, there was five years of really... I guess learning my trade and sharing my trade as a safety professional, very leadership and culture focused rather than process safety, but taking the, the building blocks of a management system and making sure that not only the management system was in place, it was a real, what I saw when I went to a lot of the organizations is they had, they had the framework, they had the processes, the procedures, the manuals, all the stuff, but they still had problems. And um, mm -hmm. what we learned was it was more about what we would call the enablers. What are the things that takes your safety management system and actually brings it to life? Mm -hmm. So you can, have, you can have a very compliant system and the auditors and the regulators will love you because you put the manual in front of them and you put the, the process and the procedure and you show them your software tools. But without the leadership, yeah. without the competence, without the capability, without the culture, and without the confidence that it's mm -hmm. all working, it means jack shit. Yes. You're actually, you've, the company's wasted its money by having an SMS or a management system because they're not using it mm -hmm. and they're not bringing it to life. And it tended to be a failure of leadership and a mm -hmm. failure to invest in the competence of their people. Mm -hmm. That's where we saw a lot of the challenges. And I don't mean leadership, just the leadership. It was helping people be good safety leaders mm -hmm. was something that, that stood out loud and clear. Yeah. So you've given a lot of difficult messages across your career then going into some of these organisations and telling them where they've got it wrong. I think yeah, yeah. watch and listen to the podcast would love to know how did you structure that when you were going in to tell them they'd got it wrong? Do you know what? It's really interesting. I, I, I still remember the day I went into Thomas Cook. Funny enough, I was, I consult, before I joined Thomas Cook, I, my first engagement was to go and... Uh, help them understand their safety culture in an area of their business. And I remember that meeting well, because I was there with my boss and he, not Kevin, another, another boss, he stood up 
and start to talk about the theory and the construct we'd use. And you could see them all getting restless. They just wanted to know what we'd found. And this is the CEO, all the management team were in there. Um, so I stood up and basically just sold it to them straight. I just said, this is where we think you're at. And this is why we think you're at. Mm -hmm. And this is what we think you need to do. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, the CEO said, you haven't told us anything we didn't know already. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this is going to go one way or another. And uh, he said, but you've confirmed everything that we thought. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, you haven't tried to sell us anything. You haven't tried to sell us a solution. You've tried to help us get better ourselves. So I want to work with you. Mm -hmm. And that led to a two and a half year program supporting Thomas Cook Airlines in, across all their airlines in, the, in Europe to yeah. help them really just enhance and build on and develop their safety culture, their safety leadership, the way they were managing their information, every part of it. Um, it was fascinating. Um, it, was a, it, was, it was a program they called Safe at Heart. Uh, Thomas Cook had a heart logo, the Sunny Heart. Yep. And the whole branding of Safe at Heart was a massive training program. But before the training, there was a whole bunch of preparation and building that management system, enhancing the management system, and then releasing it to the whole organization, which was great. I spoke to a good friend of mine um, that worked with my wife. And a bit of disclosure here that my wife worked for Thomas Cook, his cabin crew. And the most infused I've ever seen her come back from a day's training in Manchester down at Woodford was um, the day that they'd done the Safe at Heart programme. She thought it was excellent. And she brought the notes home and she normally tells me off for talking about safety over dinner and gets a bit fed up with it um, because she's my long-suffering wife that has to listen to it. But she was absolutely enthused with this, brought me all the notes back. I'm sitting reading it as we're having that. This is great. Look at this bit. This is fantastic. And I was looking at all the bits, factoring in the human factors and all the kind of influencing and how people at a lower level of ranking could challenge the captain and they would react positively and take on board their concerns and give an explanation and treat it as if it was the co-pilot that was giving them the, the information. And I thought, this is great. And I spoke to one of my friends in the lead up to this, a girl called Jill McKay. And Jill was a trainer with Thomas Cook. And Jill said, oh, that's brilliant. Colin's fantastic. You'll enjoy working with him. Safe at Heart was brilliant. As trainers, we absolutely loved delivering that programme. It was fantastic. So just well, a little bit info there. Thanks. And you know, hearing that sort of story, it's, that's why I do what I do. Mm -hmm. um, because I believe that if you can get people enthused about it, then, then they will do something different one day. And if mm -hmm. they do something different one day, then everything I've done is worth it. Everything that I've helped people do themselves is worth it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, that to me is something that, that it's been a thread throughout is you've got to give a shit about people. Yeah. If you give a shit about the people, they will stay as safe as they can be. But it's not just about giving the shit about them. You've got to give a shit and help them be safe. Yeah. And that's, that's the driver for, for leadership. And if it's not, if you can't help them and you can't give them what they need, you've got to let them know it's okay to say piss off and stop. Mm -hmm. um, it's empowerment, isn't it? Being able to empower the people and give them that bit of reassurance that if they do stop the job or they do say, I don't think something's quite right, that they'll be supported to be able to do that and factor it through. Yeah. And that's followed me across all my career as well. People ask me, well, how, how did you get people to do the things that you wanted them to do? Mm. Well, I asked them rather than told them. 
and I gave them the information as to how I would do it if I was in their position and I would give them the information on the background of it as well. Then I would support them, even if they got it wrong, I would support them and I would help them to work through it. One of the, the big overriding factors, one of the things that I've had in the past was a friend of mine is a director for a business, a real business. He called me up and he said, I'm going to sack this guy. He stopped the job because there was lightning and he didn't want to go out. And I said, well, what was he doing? He said, he was putting a couple of earthen rods up for me. <laughs> and he, he stopped the job because there was lightning. Yeah, but we checked and he canned the whole shift. And uh, there wasn't any lightning. I said, yep. So if I ask you to go and stand in the back garden just now with an earthen rod and hold it up to the lightning, would you do it? And he said, no. And I said, well, what are you thinking about? I said, what you want to do with this guy is you want to bring him in and you want to say, you've done an excellent job here. I'm going to support you. I'm going to give you a real reward for speaking up. Yep, you shouldn't have canned the whole shift. You should have waited to see if the weather had changed, taken a bit of advice and guidance on it. But you've done the right thing by making the call and standing firm by your decision. So he'd done that. And the buy-in that he got from that was insurmountable. And he phoned me back up a couple of weeks later and he said, oh, there's a total different atmosphere around the office. The guys are all coming in and talking to me. A guy even stuck his head round the door today and said, do you want a coffee? And I said, well, there you go, you know. And that, I mean, stories like that, I love, I love hearing them because when you hear of leaders who, who get it right and get that kind of engagement and the, when the lads tell them what the, excuse my language, but I, when the lads tell them what the fuck is actually going on, mm-hmm. not what they think their boss wants to hear, yeah. then that's when you can actually do your job as a leader and give them the stuff they actually need. It's mm-hmm. when they don't tell you. It's a great example. I mean, people talk about just culture and this just culture, this thing, this amazing thing. And you say, and you, you go to your training and they train you in just culture. And they start saying, so what do you think just culture is? And they go, it's an atmosphere of trust where yada, yada, yada. And you go, great, that's a great academic description of it. It's cockle use though. No one uses that as you go out. You say, what do you know about just culture to the guys and girls who are out working wherever they are? They'll look at you with a blank face. If you ask them, what do you do if you screw up? They'll say, well, we tell somebody. And you go, why? Because they need to know. Why do they need to know? Because they need to stop it happening again. There you go. I had, a, I had a, an event out in, um, out in the Middle East. Um, we just deployed the whole squadron and a bit of aircraft got damaged and no one owned up. And, uh, that was, and there's always been a bit, of, a bit of a love-hate relationship between the RAF and Navy. So we thought it must have been the RAF that did it, not us. And, uh, and no one owned up and no one owned up and, and I hit the roof. And mm-hmm. eventually these two young lads came forward and said they were just out of the training squadron. And they just joined us. They said, yeah, it was us. We said, okay. So we did the investigation. We used our just culture process, et cetera, that we had. And uh, actually, I didn't punish them or take any action against them for the event itself, that the aircraft getting damaged. But I did for not owning up mm-hmm. because you can't have a culture where people don't own up. But I went back to the crew and I sat down with the guys. And I said, you know, all, this was just after my engineering policy job. So I was all full of the theory and the enjoyment and the, everything else. And I said, so what do you understand by just culture? And they looked at me pretty blankly. And hence why I got this, you know, what do you do if you screw up? So my mantra for that whole detachment came, if you screw up, own up, I'm not interested in who I'm interested in why. Mm-hmm. And actually, they all got it. Yeah. So when the screw ups happened, they were coming to my door and saying, boss, this has just happened. How do I fill out a report? How do I tell you? How do I record this? 
And one of the guys came and said, boss, I almost fell off the aircraft. I went, what? He said, yeah, because when you're working up at height, working at height standard stuff, they had an inertia reel, they clip onto the rotor head. This guy was, was a big lad and he was trying to move around and the reel actually snatched as he was mid-transition from one place to the next. It actually mm -hmm. caused him to almost fall. So he came in and he said, I've never put a report in before. I said, come on then, pull up a pew. Here's my laptop. I'll, I'll log in as me, but you put your name in and everything else and we'll write, you know, I'll help you write it. Mm -hmm. So we did all that and, um, and we hit submit on the safety form together. And a few days later, I, I was checking all the safety reports and noticed that the, the head of engineering back at the base, so a commander, had written a comment on this safety report. Mm -hmm. So I hit print, I walked out to the hangar floor, found, found Jim and said, Jim, there you go. Here's the response on your safety report. You could have heard a pin drop in the hangar. Everyone was waiting for him to be bollocked for not holding on properly or whatever it was. And he, he read it, he went, bloody hell. Did Commander A.E. just replied to this? I said, yeah. He's read your report and he's put a comment on. Holy shit, I never realized. I said, yeah, this is the power of letting us know when you're having a problem. Because there were issues with working at height at the time and the equipment that was being used, et cetera. And I said, the more you guys report when it's nearly going wrong, the more we can say, well, hold on, we might have the wrong bit of kit. We might have to get some different kit, whatever it might be. Or we might be getting service differently, or there might be a problem with the kit. Or there might be, you know, we don't know where the problem lies, but the more you tell us, and that, again, started to get this whole culture of reporting even before it had gone wrong. He hadn't actually fallen. Mm -hmm. um, so so that, was a, that was a really rewarding moment there. The key for that bit for me as well is giving that feedback. Oh. If someone speaks up and you don't give them feedback into what you've done to try and remedy or resolve the situation, they'll never speak up again. Yeah, so many times you hear that, lack of feedback, lack of feedback. The, the phrase I use when I'm, when I'm coaching safety leaders and so on is, Feedback is the breakfast of champions. It's a, it's a well-abused phrase, but I just happened to put the word feedback in, in front of it. Um, a great example of that was a, an organization I was working with where it was, again, it's, it was working at height and it was access. Um, so large aircraft um, and you needed the old MOOPs, you know, the old raised platforms, mm -hmm. um, JLGs, JCB, whatever you want to call them, um, lifting platforms. And they had real problems with them. They didn't have enough. And they complained and complained and actually the provision of the equipment wasn't this business's responsibility. It was another part of the business's responsibility to deliver this stuff and they were failing to do that. Mm -hmm. But instead of just whinging and saying, sorry, it's outside of our control, we can't do it, we haven't got this and that is their fault. The CEO of this particular company approved the purchase of four more mobile platforms. Mm -hmm. The only problem is he forgot to tell any bugger in the business that he'd done it at this location. So I heard about it. I went back and was visiting and listening to everyone walking around. And they said, we never get any support. We put all the reports and nothing ever happens. Why should we bother? That learned helplessness. I said, what about those? He said, yeah, they're new platformers, but we've been going on about them for ages and they finally turned up. Do you know the background to why they've turned up? He said, no. I said, you know the, the CEO bought them? He went, did he? Went, yeah, yeah, it's been all the way up the chain. Everyone's fought for it. The CEO signed up the business case and that's why they've arrived. But the really important bit is he's gone outside of what he was supposed to do to do that. Mm -hmm. It was actually, as per the contract, someone else is supposed to provide them. But he wasn't prepared for you guys to be at risk. So because of the risk and the reporting, he thought, we never knew. Just that missed opportunity to really promote the whole reporting, the safety culture, the leadership, the commitment, everything else. <laughs> it's a golden opportunity that they dropped like a clangor, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but hey, we caught up and we, we made it work again. Um, and the company I was working with were, became brilliant at promoting the, 
the work they've done, there's that feedback, that feedback loop. They, they took a guy from their internal communications team. Mm-hmm. They dedicated him, dedicated him to the safety team three days a week for a year. Yeah. You imagine the, what the quality of the safety promotion material was like in that company. That was what I was going to say. The best organizations have a communications expert in their safety team yeah. that are able to factor in the information and look at the positives that are coming out of the team as well. Because all of the negative connotations around safety and certain elements in the media being portrayed as that health and safety and all of the old cliches that go with it. Oh, you're going to turn up with a clipboard and tell yeah. me off for not having my shoelaces tied and things like that. If you start to promote the positives that you're doing, it really starts to build that culture. People want to be there and be part of the team that are doing the, those things. And if you've followed me on LinkedIn for any period of time, when I was an operational safety specialist working in the rail industry, I always promoted the good stuff that my teams were doing on site. I would bring them in. I would have a bit of our team rivalry with them between the months and have safety awards for them. I would take their picture. I would put it on LinkedIn because some of these guys were out there doing a great job and they weren't getting the recognition for the good stuff that they were doing. So I would always make sure that I would promote that. And I thought that built a really good trust culture in the business. And that, that, the time you spend just asking people how they're doing, it's that classic difference between walking up to somebody and saying, what are you doing? And walking up to them and saying, how are you doing? Yep. If you ask them what they're doing, nothing. Normally you get the answer, nothing. Mm-hmm. Or, or I'm, I'm doing this task like I've been told to do. And, and suddenly they'll do it. They'll tell you exactly the way they know it should be done. If you mm-hmm. walk up to them and somebody say, how are you doing? They'll tend to engage with you in a bit of chat first. And you say, how's the job going? Oh, it's not bad, but this or that. And you suddenly you learn. And you learn so much more. Um, yep. And that's where you learn the little nuggets of, of how they're doing it and where they're getting it right and actually where they may be doing something that's even better. Um, I'm a great believer in you know, helping people get it right. Don't just catch them when they're getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Like definitely. you say. Um, definitely. It, makes, it makes a massive difference. Give them that pat on the back and explain it to them. I've done that on sites yeah. before. Especially in the construction industry, I used to stand on site and I would watch what people were doing for a couple of minutes and then go over and speak to them. And one experience of that always sticks with me. That I walked up to a guy and I said to him, doing a great job there, but have you thought about doing this? Would maybe make that a little bit safer? And he went, do you know you're right? And it totally disarmed him because he thought, I saw you watching me. He actually told me, I saw you watching me for almost 10 minutes before you came over here. And I thought you were going to come over and start shouting at me. I knew something wasn't quite right. I just didn't know what I'd done wrong. And I said, well, you've not done anything wrong. I'm just giving you some advice, some guidance to, as to how I would do it if I was doing the job, just to make it a little bit safer. And they went, oh, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Do you know, at the other side of the site, my mate's doing the exact same job. And I told him how to do it. Can we go and speak to him? Because he's given him the methodology of how to do the job. So he goes over and he tells him, this guy's great. He's just told me to do this. Let's do it that way. You know, yeah. it's all about how you pitch it sometimes as well. And I think that strikes a really important bit for me is we're teaching the senior leaders how to lead safety, how mm-hmm. to ask questions, do the safety walk. You know, the leaders have got to be visible. They've got to go out and do a safety walk. But actually, the day-to-day challenge doesn't rest with the senior leaders. Mm-hmm. Day-to-day challenge actually rests with the local managers and leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we talk about them being the pinched middle. They get talked about as the permafrost layer, the treacle in the middle, all that stuff. They're just the guys, who, guys and girls who day-to-day are struggling to match the operational delivery, whatever it might be, laying the concrete panel, you know, mm-hmm. 
fitting the new rail, fixing the train, the aircraft, whatever it might be, and keeping everything safe. So the day-to-day trade-offs and the day-to-day drift, like you're talking about there, I showed my mate how to do the job. Mm-hmm. They're the guys who are suffering from it every day. And it's not, oh, here comes the exec for his monthly walk around in his, high, his shiny new high biz. Why is it the safety guys and execs have the cleanest PPE ever? I mean, that and the shiniest and the best quality jacket, the highest boots. It always amazes me. But anyway, I digress. Um, but it's the, it, we need to help the middle team mm-hmm. in how to, how to lead safely. Yep. Because they're the guys who day in, day out, sit there going, for Christ's sake, I've got all this shit to juggle. And you want me to deliver that by five o'clock? Christ. It's no wonder that their focus is on the operational rather than the safety element. And that's when safety becomes a given, becomes safety is assumed because we're always talking about it, but it becomes, it becomes implicit rather than explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, so so our, we need to help them. And I, I don't see much help in developing the middle le- leaders. Yeah. So safety yeah. leadership programs, they're all for execs and seniors. What about the safety leadership programs to help the, the recently promoted junior foreman? Junior foreman and how to lead safe because normally people get promoted because of their technical ability. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that you see people getting promoted based on their management or leadership, particularly mm-hmm. their leadership ability. It's yeah. because if, if he's a great engine fitter, he's, he's the leading engine fitter or, you know, whatever, whatever in industry you're in, but we've got to invest in those people at the start to help them become the future generations of safety leaders. If you don't yeah. invest in them early and give them just some practical skills, just like I'm talking about, you know, how are you doing? Not what are you doing? Those sorts of conversations, how to spot, how to give feedback, to make sure the feedback's actually happening. If they hear something, make sure they tell the lads during coffee break. You know, become a leader. Yeah, and the engineering construction setting as well. I found that a lot of the teams, they would promote someone from within the team up to being the team supervisor, the team leader, style or level. And they would put them on the kind of SMSTS, triple STS type of course and expect them just to slot into that role without any training on how to manage or lead a team. Then they would go out to work with the team that they used to work with and they would want to do the job rather than being able to take the strategic hands off and train the more junior members of the team how to do the job, especially if there's time pressure there, they would want to be standing and get the job done because they're the most experienced person in the team to run the job. And they know all the shortcuts. They end up up teaching their team all the shortcuts and the workarounds Mm -hmm. rather than being the one standing back saying, why are you having to work around? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I'm completely with you on that one. Mm-hmm. it's a real challenge so if we continue on then Colin if you just tell us a little bit more about you mentioned challenges there can you tell us some of your biggest challenges in health and safety yeah I think I think getting it wrong um, or wishing you'd got it right mm-hmm. um, so I had a that's probably I suppose my worst day in health and safety um, mm-hmm. was actually when I was part of the squadron we were we were um We've been out in the Middle East, we've been land-based, we've been doing a lot of the stuff out there. And then our job was to come back and prepare to go to sea. Mm-hmm. And that was great. And we were going to go to sea on, on one of the aircraft carriers, HMS Illustrious, and we were going to go and do some exercises. So it takes a while to get to work helicopters at sea or to work on a, on a ship at sea with aircraft. It's, it's complex. It's, it's, a, it's another level of complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes time to build that pace up. Um, I served in Illustrious. Previously, we brought it out of refit. We'd worked it up. We had jets on board and all sorts. And we had this mantra of crawl, walk, run. 
Mm-hmm. Quadrant would come on board for the first 48 hours, they would just get acclimatized to the ship. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you'd start to operate day only. And then you'd operate slowly into night, and then you'd start to do day into night. And you'd start to get more complex, both on the engineering, moving on the deck, and the flying. Mm-hmm. And I remember that. And then when I got to the squadron a few years later, we were told, right, you're going to come back from your deployment abroad. You're going to have a bit of time to prepare. And, and then you're going on the ship. And I remember sitting in the, um, there were four of executives. So the, the commanding officer, the senior pilot, the senior observer, and myself as the engineer, um, the, AEO, the air engineering officer. We were the four execs. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there during this meeting when we were planning this. And they said, right, so the plan is we're going to get on the ship. The ship's going to sail. The aircraft's going to land on. We're going to go straight into day into night flying. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's far too fast. We can't do that. Oh, and it's going to, by the way, it's going to be a mixed circuit. So we're going to have Chinooks, Apaches, and Merlins all flying around the aircraft carrier, landing, taking off, and go straight from day into night. Mm-hmm. Bloody, I mean, that's, that's like A-level flying mm-hmm. when you haven't even set your GCSEs yet or you haven't refreshed or done, you know, you've been on holiday for six weeks and you come straight in and do an exam the next day. It's mm-hmm. just, it's too much too quickly. And I remember flagging something, guys, we're not at that stage. From my perspective, the guys on the deck, they're not going to be able to run around the deck at night doing that straight off. They need to be built up, get back into the rhythm, you know, crawl, walk, run. Yeah. And they said when they explained the constraints of why that, had, why that couldn't happen that way. And, and so we, we, we f- tried to find a way of de-risking it slightly, not in the language of risk and controls and et cetera, but we just tried to de-risk it. Um, mm-hmm. So I remember accepting the compromise. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a few weeks, we're now on the ship. It's the first night of flying. We're, we're night, it must have been about two in the morning. Mm-hmm. I was, I'd, I'd been up all day um, and supervised all. So I was actually in my bed at that point and my duty engineer was up on deck. Um, and the general alarm goes off on the ship. General alarm, it's a <coughs> It goes off throughout the ship and it, it's, it's emergency station, basically, it's, or something's happened. Casualty, 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 casualty in the hangar. Mm-hmm. My first reaction is, shit, I bet it's one of our guys. So everyone jumps up, races up, you know, what's going on, what's going on? It turns out one of our pilots had fallen down the lift from the flight deck to the hangar, about 25, 30 feet onto a steel deck. Um, got him evacuated off. Um, we were operating off the west coast of Scotland at the time, got him flown into Glasgow, Royal Infirmary. Um, but it hit us like a, it hit us like a bombshell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that put us on edge the whole way through. The whole way through this exercise, everything that was going on, we became really aware that actually we were, we were working right at the limit of the capacity of our team at that time, given the time we'd had to work about. And actually, towards the end of that exercise, I remember sitting down with the CEO and we actually pulled the squadron for the exercise mm-hmm. before the end because there was just, you know, when you get that unease, that feeling that something's yeah. going to give. We'd already had that event. That was only day two, mm-hmm. day night one of the whole three-week embarkation. And as we get towards the end, we just went, this isn't right. So some of the tasks we actually, we, we, we said at this point, we're not going to do them, which every commanding officer has the right to do with their squadron. And it was a measured decision and we discussed it. It was fully approved by command. So it wasn't as if we were just throwing in the towel or, or rapping or, or um, mutiny. Um, but it was one of those moments when we sat down together and just went, stop. Something's not right. We're, we're going to end up 
having another accident and that's not but that whole way through and still today i still think about that poor guy and did i do enough when we were in that meeting room before we'd even left the squadron mm -hmm. to say crawl walk run um, so that's probably in terms of my biggest challenge mm -hmm. that was the biggest challenge that i didn't do anything about mm -hmm. um, at the time what was the extent of his injuries colin uh, life-changing Right. right. Life-changing. Um, so, so that was, I mean, and that hit the ship, but again, the investigation was carried out. Mm -hmm. That was also, I learned a lot mm -hmm. from that. I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about procedures. I learned a lot about, I learned a lot about blame, to be mm -hmm. honest. Blame's a delicious emotion. I, I, mm -hmm. That was a, a great phrase. It came, I believe it came from James Reason. Mm -hmm. blame is a delicious emotion we love a bit of blame mm -hmm. um, and the opportunity to really learn and really challenge internally and externally um, we see it in society every day i mean i was listening to radio 4 the other day and the first question the the interviewer asked the guy being interviewed was who's to blame mm -hmm. well it's never going to help you learn it's their fault great problem solved no bullshit you know let's find out why we all know this stuff um so so that was i think the biggest thing that I, I learned was was really about a what could I have done and should I have been stronger but e, b you know some of the organizational re responses and reactions I learned a lot about about how to get it right and perhaps how to get it wrong um, it's very very difficult looking back hindsight engineering situations isn't it could I have done more would I would it have made a difference with the benefit of hindsight but when you're in the situation it can be a very hard decision to make to make any kind of compromise like that so i, I totally sympathize yeah. With, yeah. yeah so so yeah that was a challenge i think if i fast forward to a, another challenge i had um having left the consultancy um i was asked by the team at thomas cook if i would join them full-time as their director of safety um and actually i was i was really ready for that challenge i've been i've been gobbing off enough about how they should do it it was time for me to go and do it myself mm -hmm. um so to go from a consultant to being part of an organization and actually leading the teams and being responsible was, was a challenge I was really ready for. So mm -hmm. I remember I drove up to Manchester. I had a nightmare getting to Manchester my first day, but I got there in the end. Day two, I'm sitting in my wee office and I'm meeting the team. I knew some of them, but not all of them. I'm just getting to grips. And uh, one, of the, um, one of the senior um, flight ops management team comes down and says, can we talk about Banjul? I'm going, okay, where's Banjul? Mm -hmm. and they go, it's the Gambia. It's the, the, cap, it's the, the capital of Gambia. And Banjul International Airport is something we've been um, challenged with for some time. You may, your wife will probably be telling you about Banjul. Anyway, yeah. the, the Gambia is a, is a great tourist destination. And Thomas mm -hmm. Cook had invested heavily in hotels. And like we were the biggest airline that flew in there. Mm -hmm. um, but Banjul has a problem with birds. Mm -hmm. Airports, aircraft and birds don't mix. Mm -hmm. They're a bit like oil and water. You don't want birds near aircraft. You don't want aircraft near birds. Yeah, um, and it's fine. Bird strike coming out of race a few years ago. You remember so, that one? Yeah. So you just need to look at the Hudson, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the 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 crash and well, not the crash, the water landing on the Hudson. Um, mm -hmm. That was birds. Mm -hmm. Sucking birds through engines is not good news. Now, one sparrow you can get away with. Chicken-sized aircraft, you can probably they're designed to get away with one of them. When you start talking about vulture-sized birds going into engines, you've got a bit of a bigger problem. Yeah. So the severity is that much higher. Anyway, 
bird control at Banjul was challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had been an issue for a number of time, number of years. And we only operated there in the winter. It was a winter season destination, winter yeah. sun type thing. Um, and I joined in the May, so they were going through the risk assessment ready for next winter. Um, and like all good risk assessments, it had been updated and the controls had been audited and, and the audit team had got back and put in their report. And a lot of the additional controls that were expected to have been introduced hadn't been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, no, we'll do that next spring. We'll do that next spring. Or we haven't had the funding. We'll do that next year. There's a lot of jam tomorrow in the, mm-hmm. in the audit report and therefore a lot of jam tomorrow in the controls and mitigations. So this guy, Andy, came down and said, Colin, I want to talk to you about Banjul. Okay, so we looked at it and he showed me the risk assessment. I went through it and took some time to read through it. And I went, these controls aren't effective. So you haven't actually reduced the risk. Mm-hmm. And the risk is currently unacceptable. So unless we actually do something, we can't fly there this winter. That's a pretty punchy call for a safety director to make on his second day, <laughs> one of the biggest winter destinations for the group. Um, so I quickly went to see the MD and said, I think we've got a problem with Banjul. Um, another audit isn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. I think we need to ramp up. And he went, well, what do you mean? So I explained that it's no good just going down and checking somebody and telling them they need to get better if they haven't got the capability to really get better themselves. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what they didn't know when they didn't know how to get better. Yeah. No fault of their own. That's just the environment they found themselves in compared to the standards they were being asked to meet. And the the cultures and everything else that go with it. Mm-hmm. So, so basically the answer was, if we want to fly there this winter, we've got to help them get better or mm-hmm. we're not flying this. Now there are 20 other airlines, the CAA had a working group involved and everyone was talking a great game, but there wasn't any action. And in order between May and October, because October was when we were going to start flying, we had to help them get better. So, so that very quickly got to the CEO who understood the situation. And basically I said, give me 80,000 pounds and we'll get better in the next four months. Mm-hmm. Let's go and fix the problem in Banjul. And we ended up getting some wildlife consultants, paying for them ourselves, even though was, this was for an airport where we were only one of 20, air, 20 airlines flying in there. I said, yeah. we can't wait for collaborative working and another working group to form because our risk is still our risk. It doesn't matter what their risk is, that's their decision. But from our perspective, we can't afford to fly in there unless we reduce the risk. We increase the effectiveness of the controls. And we've got to help them do it. So, so I don't care what they're doing, and I don't care if they're going to fund it or pay us back or whatever, but if we don't spend this money, we can't fly there this winter. And it was a really, what surprised me and really reassured me was the amount of support I got from the leadership team of Thomas Cook. They went, absolutely, let's go for it. Let's go and help them get better. There wasn't an argument of, oh, we don't, we can, can we get away with not doing it? What's the minimum? None of that stuff. They're like, right, Colin, you're absolutely right. If we need to do this, let's go and do it. The money came without question. Um, and we managed to get a great team of consultants who went down there and they helped the wildlife team get a lot better. At the same time, we also recognized that the fire and rescue service. So, so there's the preventative and um, measure. And then there's the, the what, what do you do where the shit does go wrong? So, mm-hmm. so we had the, let's not have the birds in the first place. And then the, well, what happens if we do have a bird strike and we've got to get back into Banjul quickly? Mm-hmm. What's the fire and rescue service like to look after everyone if it does go wrong? And yeah, they need some help too. So I also got one of my great old Navy friends, funnily, uh, an old colleague of mine from Days of Illustrious on the flight deck. Um, he now goes out around the world helping organizations with fire and rescue stuff. He's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So, so I called him up and said, mate, how can you, 
would you be interested in going to Banjul? How quickly can you get there and what can you do for me? And he was awesome. So between a great wildlife team and Simon, my old pal, going out and doing the workout in Banjul, they changed the place down mm -hmm. there. They did it because they went down there and worked with them. Didn't go down there to tell them what to do. Didn't go down there to order them and check on them. They went down there with a mindset of helping, yep. helping them get better. And they were supported by Thomas Cook mm -hmm. and paid for by Thomas Cook to help the whole of Banjul get Banjul the airport get better from a wildlife and fire rescue. And it was, it was one of those jobs that I just, I was lucky enough to be able to help other people get better. Um, mm -hmm. And they did a phenomenal job on our behalf. The galling bit is before it all got settled and the bills got paid, Thomas Cook went bust. And my mate Simon, unfortunately, because he was such a great guy, he actually got hung out to dry and didn't get oh, his bills paid. No. Um, which really, yeah, gutting because he was doing the most amazing job. What was lovely to hear, though, is that other airlines then started to pick up the pieces and mm -hmm. help and continue some of the work. Mm -hmm. um, so, so Banjul got continued support because it's an amazing environment, incredible people down there and, and tourism was a real lifeline for them. So, so it was, it, that, was, that was, I think it was a big challenge to, to throw my weight around to day two and say no, um, on with evidence and justification. But I think people in, the, in Thomas Cook kind of knew that that was going to be the case that was coming because they knew that it was getting a bit, they were pushing a bit too far without any evidence of the things getting better. So I think I just, I just called it out, but they knew it was coming anyway. Um, mm -hmm. But that was, a, that was a big challenge, I think, to, to, to join an organization on, the, on your second day, you have to, have to make a call like that. Um, but the, the fact that the leadership team were there and they supported it and they, and they absolutely backed it up, there was already an amazing amount of work that was happening there. It wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't me on my own, it was, it was just, but that to me was a, was a bit of a challenge, yeah. Mm -hmm. Banjo was a place that all of the cabin crew dreaded going. None of them liked the hotel or the food or any of the stuff that went with going there. It was yeah. the one that everybody feared on their roster. <laughs> so uh, that was quite, quite interesting. Uh, but that, and that changed. Um, yeah. there, there was a lot of great stuff. Um, you know, I got reports from my pal Simon, you know, how are you getting on down there and stuff. And he, was, he loved it down there. Mm -hmm. um, he said the hotel was great. Everyone was brilliant looking after them. So, yeah, it was, it was good. But, you know, the Gambia is an interesting country. Yeah. It's, not, it's, not, it's not your south of Spain or your Costa del Sol or your Canaries. It's, it's different. Um, but a great winter destination. Yeah, they were doing some great destinations as well, weren't they, at that yeah. time? So there was quite a lot of Vegas and Florida's going on. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, the whole, the Thomas Cook family was, was yeah. brilliant. Um, so, yeah, so Thomas Cook went bang. Um, mm -hmm. And I was kept on for a bit to help wind it up and some of the regulatory work that had to, had to go on. Mm -hmm. And then I, um, I was lucky enough to, to be introduced to the CEO of Flybee. Mm -hmm. um, who was at a point looking for a new director of safety. Um, and we got chatting and, and yeah, so there was, Flyby was definitely in turnaround mode and Mark was being, that was after this after it had been bought by a consortium including Virgin. Um, mm -hmm. And Mark was brought in to turn it around and that's exactly what he was doing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I thought, great. I, I'd known Flyby from my diagnostic days and I could see the changes and improvements that were happening and, and the, the, the potential of that airline. So yeah, absolutely committed to that joined the team and mm -hmm. eight weeks later Flybe went bust. Um, so that was my second second company going bust in the space of six months mm -hmm. um, which was a I think I learned a lot about personal resilience at that yeah. point um, and, and actually there are a couple of other a few other people who'd come from Thomas Cook to Flybe 
Yeah. One guy had literally joined two weeks before we went bust. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's amazing. Sometimes it's the black humor in it. It's the, sometimes it's the amazing community in aviation, much like rail and other high risk industries. There's an amazing community that sort of forms around some of these key industries. Um, so there's an amazing community that kicked in both with Thomas Cook and with Flybe. But also I learn about personal resilience and support from my wife and family and everyone else and friends. Just it's there when you need it. When you need the support, it's there. And I think I learned, I learned a fair bit about mental health and well-being. Yeah. Um, yes, it's become almost the buzzword now. Um, but nothing could be further than a buzzword. It's, it's so vitally important. And actually seeing the community support that's out there and some of the long-term things that are happening as a result of that is fantastic. Um, there is a real caring for each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are realizing that caring for each other isn't just when something goes wrong. It's about, it needs to be there all the time. And I think yeah. that's one thing I've picked up from Flybe. Again, you know, I'm still part of the, the administrators team helping to, to, to manage that. Um, I'm very fortunate in that. Um, but actually, it also help, allows us to help other people at the same time. So I'm spending some time with a charity, um, helping other people, developing mentoring, peer, peer supporting, etc. Yeah, you've um, been doing some excellent work with that as well. Can you tell us a bit about that, Colin? I saw some of your posts on LinkedIn. Yeah, so this guy, Chris Wilde, he's um, based up, he's one of the senior managers up at Manchester Airport. Mm-hmm. He wanted to take that amazing community feel because he mm-hmm. saw it with Thomas Cook, he saw it with Manchester Airport, he saw it with COVID mm-hmm. um, and the impact that COVID was having on aviation. And he wanted to try and put a bit of structure and support, formalize the support around it. So he created this charity called Aviation Action. And yeah. aviation actually, the symbol is actually a heart with two sort of shaking hands. Mm-hmm. And it just sums up the, um, the holding hand and the heart, the love and the care. Um, that sounds very pink and fluffy. I can be a bit pink and fluffy sometimes, but it's important. Um, and he, he's put in, he's pulled together all the different threads of care and support and mm-hmm. pulled it into a, into a structure, turned it into a charity. Um, and there's a huge amount of volunteers. So it's basically a volunteer driven peer, originally sort of peer support, career development. How do we help people get back on their feet mm-hmm. for the, for the massive side swipe that aviation's had, just like a number of other industries. Aviation is just one of a number of industries that has been sideswiped by COVID. Um, and how do we help people stay on their feet or get back on their feet? So everything from mental health, health first aid to career development, to, uh, mentoring, um, mm-hmm. peer support buddy system what about the people who are just about to join our industry so i've just been um lined up with a buddy um very pleased to say i've got, I've got a call with him tomorrow our mm-hmm. first call um and he's a young graduate who's yep. doing a degree in aviation mm-hmm. so what's on his radar right now mm-hmm. how does he get into an industry that's been decimated and is struggling to recover yeah. so the ability to buddy someone like that with someone like me who's been there, done a bit of it, seen a bit of it, know some of it, hear some of it. You know, I'm no expert in all this stuff, but I'm, I'm part of it. And I, hopefully I'll be able to help and guide him. I also spoke to a couple of people who were, who were looking to perhaps change career and, and diverge or get into safety or do more in safety formally rather than informally. Um, so, yeah, so I've had a few conversations with people. I'm one of, one of a lot of people who's helping. Um, mm-hmm. And again, there are people who've turned to them for career support and found another job, which is great. There are people who've just wanted someone to chat to from uh, someone open who they can just talk to and share the challenges they've got. And that's where aviation action has been kicking in. Um, so it's really great to be part of it. And I'll put the link for aviation action in the description. If anybody out there is listening or watching and wants a bit of help or support 
I just want someone to speak to that's been affected by what's happened in the aviation industry. Get in touch with them, and we'll put that up there. Yeah, there's a there's a website as well. It's great. Get in there. Just shout what you need, and someone will be in touch with you very quickly to just to understand a bit more, and then guide you to the right sort of help you might need. Um, mm. And that's really what it is. It's it's a it's a it's the community in action. Mm. What aviation action is all about. It's fantastic. Um, so so yeah, so that's sort of something else that I've been got been involved in. Um, and other than that, really just sort of seeing what's coming up next. What are the challenges? Where are we going? Um, you know, I think the leading people and helping organizations stay safe is, it's, it's my purpose. Um, mm -hmm. I love Simon Sinek. I love watching his, his yeah. YouTube talks, reading his books. I just chime with the ease with which you read his stuff. Mm -hmm. um, he takes the academic and, and makes it more practicable. Mm -hmm. um, and that to me, that's where I think safety is really challenged right now. Um, yeah. You know, you talk about safety differently, safety two. I've now just realized Nancy Leveson's talking about safety three. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a huge amount of academic thinking about safety. Yeah. But I fear that it's the academic theorizing is getting ahead of the practical application. Yeah. People, people who are actively managing safety need help in the practical application. They don't need another theory or a competing theory or another another brain fog of more theories and big words what they need is simple practical advice how mm -hmm. to make shit better mm -hmm. we want more good stuff and less bad shit <laughs> anyone who's got an idea for how to do more good stuff and less bad shit i want to hear it i want to share it and that's really where where I, you know i talk about pub language but that's where we're missing it i think we get we get hung up on boardroom language and bigger words make us sound smarter we're afraid excuse my language bullshit if you can't explain something simple, mm -hmm. then you don't understand it yourself. Or if you yeah. can't explain it in a simple manner, you don't understand it yourself. And I'm a big believer in that. So people who start throwing big words around all the time actually make, make it harder, not better. Mm -hmm. so, so that may sound trite and easy to say, but, but that's certainly a mantra I try and challenge myself with. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that I have a complete and utter potty mouth probably stems from 20 odd years in the Navy. I had some great teachers who taught me how to swear like a trooper um, or like a sailor, I should say. Um, and I, I, you know, I just, I think it builds rapport. It's, it's the way we speak to our friends and, and pals. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't wear a suit. I don't wear a tie at work. Um, mm -hmm. I wear jeans and an open neck shirt. Mm -hmm. And if it means I can walk down to the hangar floor or out to the ramp or wherever it might be and just chat with the guys and swear and curse with the best of them, Great, because if that means they tell me one thing that they wouldn't tell me if I was wearing a suit, I'm all over it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, brilliant. So if we continue on then, where do you see yourself going, Colin? What's the next big challenge? What are you going to get stuck into? Um, it to be honest, it depends on what's, what happens job-wise. Um, mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I've realised is aviation's a bit isolated in the in the broader health and safety world um, mm -hmm. for example health and safety qualifications and IOSH uh, NEBOSH etc there's no requirement in aviation safety to have anything like that um, mm -hmm. the way that aviation approves the safety professionals it's one-to-one -one interviews with the regulator so yep. in order to be the the safety manager of an airline you have mm -hmm. my, my interview at Thomas Cook was about two hours long mm -hmm. um, with with the reg with one of the regulators one of the um the inspectors mm -hmm. who then signed a bit of paper to said, yes, you, I approve you to be the safety manager of Thomas Cook mm -hmm. based on the competence you've displayed and your career profile, et cetera. 
Um, so, so rather than having a certificate as such, you have an interview and it proves you're particularly suited for that individual role. Mm -hmm. So, so there's never been a, an IOSH, grad IOSH, NIBOSH certification approval diploma type approach. Mm -hmm. um, however, I think there's an awful lot that can be shared between the different industries. So I yeah. think in terms of translatable skills, yeah. um, what I have also noticed is no matter what label you put in front of it, it's the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Whether you call it rail safety, air safety, environmental safety, occupational safety, it's the same shit. It yeah. really is. It's about helping people do it better and stopping them, stop the bad shit happening. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the, even the processes, the mindset, the risk assessment, the, yeah. the assurance, the communication, the engagement, all that stuff's the same. So the transferable skills is something that I've, I've really taken some time to, to look into. Mm -hmm. And it, again, boils down to leadership. If you mm -hmm. can lead safety effectively, then any regulation can be brought to life. Yeah. Um, be it an ISO standard, be it a regulatory like HSE regulations or um, legislation, et cetera. Um, so translatable skills. Um, and I think to me personally, it's about leading the team. Mm -hmm. I can lead a team. I can lead a team in any any environment, be that rail, nuclear, maritime, air. So to be honest, where do I see myself progressing? Continuing to lead organizations to help them be safer and to look after their teams and their, and their customers' safety. That's, that's where I see myself ending up. Excellent. Thank you, Colin. What advice would you give to someone starting out in health and safety today? Um, pin your ears back, I think is a good one. Mm -hmm. um, listen, you will learn so much more from listening to people Mm -hmm. and asking good open questions yeah um i think um i think another bit is to believe in others and this this links into this blame and this desire to blame people mm -hmm. i've yet to meet someone who went to work to screw it up i haven't found that person yet and i don't actually believe they exist no mm -hmm. one turns up to work to get it wrong everyone is trying to get it right every day and they're trying to do a good job because do you know what when you do a good job it feels bloody great if you, what doesn't matter what job you're doing, if when it goes right, it feels bloody good and people like that. So no one turns up to screw it up. So if believe, believe in the good in other people, mm -hmm. the reason it goes wrong is not normally because they screwed it up. Now you might get the odd, the odd one in a million, but I've yet to meet somebody who turned up to work to screw it up. Um, another bit is that people do safety, not processes. Mm -hmm. So Normally, the fix is not to write another process. Yeah, I had a challenge when I was engineering, when I was looking at the engineering policy. They told me to, um, for every new procedure I put in place, I had to remove three. Mm -hmm. So you imagine all the manuals and everything else that we have. We just add more and more and more freaking layers on top, don't we? My challenge was for every one I put in, I had to take three out. Mm -hmm. I didn't quite make it. I got two out on a number of occasions. I never got to three out. Mm -hmm. But... Um, but yeah, we need to do that because we're just making this massive bureaucracy. So if yeah. you're getting into the safety world, think about stuff other than processes. Um, and the last thing is just get stuck in. Um, I met a CEO of an airline, a big airline, who was a previous safety director. Mm -hmm. it, there is a career path to be built from safety. It used to be yeah. it's where everyone went to retire. The old mm -hmm. farts in the safety corner or the quality office, it's not that anymore. I'm seeing more and more young people build a good career out of safety. So get stuck. My, my last words are get stuck into safety because mm -hmm. it's good. 
we saw that with Fraser Allen that was on the show a few months ago. Fraser went from being the director of safety and risk with his organisation to moving into being the managing director of a large-scale construction organisation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's happening. It yeah. didn't used to happen, but it's happening now. Mm-hmm. Um, people realise safety is now is, has become more and more central rather than on the periphery. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that's it. That's really, you know, get stuck in. If you're going to get safety, get stuck into it. Brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Colin. I really appreciate your time this evening. Uh, Blair, to be honest, I've gobbed off. I love the sound of my own voice, as you probably noticed. Um, but that's uh, been brilliant. Really enjoyable time. Thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide.